people and open your Bibles there to Revelation 21, uh, right there at the very end of the Scriptures. And uh, we're going to look at the things that are told to us about the new heaven and the new earth. As we read these uh, first eight verses and we look at uh, this imagery here, uh, let's keep in mind the context that we have uh, been studying up to this point. We have seen at the end of chapter 20 that Satan has been judged, he is defeated, he has been cast into the lake of fire. Death and Hades have also been cast into the lake of fire. And we saw in verses 11 through 15 of chapter 20, all the dead, all people, small and great, are now standing before the great throne room scene of God and all are being judged according to their deeds. And there is nothing as we come into chapter 21 to take us away from that time frame. That is where we stand and what we are looking at now as we now stand at the end of time as Christ has pronounced His judgments through His reign. And so we're going to read these first eight verses of chapter 21 and notice some of the descriptions that are given to us about this great finale that is to come. Revelation 21, the first eight verses, listen and give heed to the word of the Lord. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Well, we begin with some fantastic images. And as I study this, and I hope you will uh, appreciate and enjoy as well, just beautiful language of the hope and the expectation that the people of God have. You have in verse 1 of chapter 21, now then he sees the new heaven and the new earth Because the old heaven, the first heaven, and the first earth has passed away. We saw that in chapter 20. If you remember that, uh, we saw that imagery back in chapter 20 and verse 11 when all are before the great throne room scene that says that earth and heaven or earth and sky, they fled away and there's no, no, they're not in the presence of God anymore because there's no need for them. There is no place for them any longer. And so we continue to have set before us that this is looking at what are, what is going to come. Now this imagery of the new heaven and the new earth 
This isn't the first time the Scriptures talk about it. And one of the things you will notice as we go through chapter 21 in these first eight verses particularly is that the images that we read here are directly from Isaiah. So many of the images we're going to look at have a a reference from Isaiah. And when we go through our Wednesday night class, we get to chapter 21, we're going to get to spend a lot of time looking at those images that was going on there. Particularly Isaiah 65, verse 17, as well as Isaiah 66 and verse 22. Uh, Those are notable places as Isaiah comes to the end of his prophecy where he speaks of this new heaven and new earth that is to come. The Apostle Peter at the end of his second letter also spoke similarly in chapter 3 and verse 10 when he said, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hasting the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt away as they burn? But according to His promise... We are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And I believe that Peter well encompasses and summarizes what this section is talking about. We have seen heaven and earth pass away. We've seen the judgment seen in chapter 20. And now... John is now able to see here is the new heaven and the new earth. And here is Peter saying, that is what the Christian hope is bound in. This is what Christians are looking forward to. This arrival of the new heaven and the new earth. Now, the big question is, well, what is this talking about? What are we describing here? What is the intention of the author to say, well, this is the old heaven and earth passing away. Now we have this new heaven and new earth. And one of the things that I think that will get from when by looking at Isaiah as well as Peter and as well as we go through these verses is the idea that now God is able to be permanently with His people a reuniting of and reconciling of the relationship that God can be with them. It recalls for us what had happened back in the book of Genesis in those first three chapters particularly there in chapter 3 where the people of God here Adam and Eve at that time they have sinned against God and that causes them to be cast out of God's presence. They're no longer allowed to be with Him in paradise. There's a separation that is demanded because God cannot dwell in darkness, dwell with evil, or dwell with sin. And so now we are seeing this finale being brought in in chapter 21 that says, now God is able to dwell with His people One more time. Now there is a restoration that has occurred. And I think that's the the picture that we're going to notice as we go through the images uh, that are set before us. It is interesting some of the pictures that are given. Notice in verse 2, Then I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as the bride adorned for her husband. Now, Revelation is going to spend more time on that from verse 9 into the beginning of chapter 22. And so, we won't spend a lot of time with New Jerusalem as yet. He's going to tell us the details of that in just a moment. But notice how he's bringing these two concepts together. I saw a new heavens and a new earth, and the sea is no more. We'll talk about the sea in just a minute. 
And he sees them coming down out of heaven, this new Jerusalem. Well, we've seen new Jerusalem. We've seen this imagery before that was given to us because it's described here in verse 2 as prepared as the bride adorned for her husband. Remember, we saw that back in chapter 19. We saw that imagery that here are the people of God. This is the new Jerusalem. This is the bride that is prepared for the groom. And they are wearing then the righteous deeds of the saints. And so here's the the, the picture being brought to us here in verse 2. Here's the people of God. Here is this imagery of being able to be joined with Christ. Now, what is interesting, and I think what is challenging about the language that is given us here is, in many senses, what we are reading already seems to exist, right? Well, we're already able to be reconciled to God. That's one of the great blessings that's given. Ephesians 5, verses 25 through 27 describes Christ and the church being joined together and and the great relationship that exists now as we are joined with Him and have the great blessings that come from that. And so I think often some will come to this passage and go, well, this isn't talking about things to come. This is talking about what we already have. However, that really goes against the time frame of what the book is set up for us. Chapter 20 has been, all evil has been set aside. In fact, that's what I think verse 1 is describing when it says the sea is no more. Well, that has represented evil and has represented wicked humanity in many places throughout this book. If you remember in chapter 13 and verse 1, where did that beast come out of? The sea. Bad, evil, wicked, uh, no good. And it's the same idea is that this is a scene where there is no wickedness, there is no more evil, all of that has been set aside. We are now in the perfect paradise of God. We are now with the Lord. And so what chapter 21 is picturing for us is the holy people of God, the church, that is describing them in the perfected state, looking forward to that time where we are now able to be in a reunion with God, to be with Him face to face, as so often we sing, and picturing the eternal rewards being bestowed upon those who are faithful to Him. And we'll notice as we go through verses 3 through 8, you'll see that unfold as these first two verses kind of set that up, this imagery of, okay, here we are, here is this great scene as the people of God are now finally joined with God Himself and are able to experience the great blessings of God and are able to receive this great restoration and joining with Him and being with Him as we've always desired. And so that's the the setup of what these first two verses are doing. And notice how verse 3 continues that. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. Here is this picture of being restored and being joined back together again. God is dwelling with man, dwelling with humanity one more time, and being able to be joined together no longer as sin separated His people from God. Now we are experiencing these great blessings and this great joining with Him. And notice what that looks like in the the vivid imagery that is used to depict that. Verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now, uh, that is a a great picture. And we even sang a song tonight. No tears in heaven. And it's a, a fabulous thought that is being given to us of 
Here is what it means to now be truly joined to God. Here is just some imagery of what it will be like to receive the eternal reward and to experience the final blessings that we have so been looking forward to. Unfortunately, some come along to this verse and kind of... um, Make it yucky by <laughs> saying, well, uh, wiping away tears means they're crying, right? And so uh, obviously there's still pain and suffering because they're still crying. Well, actually they're not. If you read the, read the rest of the verse, it says no mourning, no crying. But uh, be that as it may, uh, that's not the idea. It does not mean that we're still crying. That's not the idea because that's used to say, well, we're not talking about our final perfected state. It's talking about right now. And that not only doesn't fit the time frame, of our book that we've gone through at this point, that we are at the end now, and some of the descriptions of the people of God. But more importantly, it's describing what these Christians are about to receive. The idea of God wiping away their tears strongly is saying they have suffered so much for the cause of Christ in this present heaven and earth And now they have gone home to be with God and they are being comforted. That is the picture. The tears have come from living in this world. Remember what we have seen throughout the book of Revelation. They are being persecuted. They are being slain for the cause of Christ. And here is this beautiful imagery saying, but God is going to wipe those tears away. God is going to give comfort to the faithful. Those who are His, they are going to receive this great reward throughout all of eternity. That is the idea of saying that God is going to wipe away their tears, is to say, now they're going to receive the comfort. The comfort is not here. The comfort is not in this present time, not on this present earth. That is yet to come. And so far as we've been through this book of Revelation, we have seen that. That is, the faithful who are experiencing the persecution, they are willing to give up their lives because they understand that it's all about serving the Lamb. Those who are unwilling to do that are trying to have the comforts now. And he will allude to that in verse 8, which we'll look at in just a few minutes. This imagery also is not foreign to the Scriptures of wiping away tears. Isaiah used it. Isaiah 22 and verse 4. And speaking about how the Babylonians were going to come and cause great peril and difficulty and destruction uh, to the southern nation of Judah, there Isaiah said, Therefore I said, Look away from me, let me weep bitter tears. Do not labor to comfort me concerning the destruction of the daughter of my people. Here is Isaiah prophesying the great wailing and sorrow that is going to transpire because of the devastation that is about to come. And then just a couple chapters later, Isaiah says in chapter 20, verse 8 he will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken same idea presently stricken presently distressed presently being killed is even what Isaiah has been prophesying nations going to come in and destroy but here is God saying I'm going to provide comfort to my people yet again and so that's the imagery of wiping tears away is not suggesting that when we are all in the eternal life that there's still going to be pain there no that's not the idea nor should we come to these verses and say well it can't be talking about the end because it says he's going to wipe away tears no no 
That's how you how God speaks of comfort. He's going to console and comfort His people. We have been torn by tears in the life that we've lived on the earth. Now the new heaven and new earth has arrived. We are now reconciled with God. We are receiving the eternal blessings and comfort is being given to His people. And that's what the rest of verse 4 describes. Notice he says there in the middle of verse 4, And death shall be no more. The end of death. Then no longer will that exist. What a great picture. What a great scene. And that is important to keep in mind because what did the Apostle Paul tell us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 about when that was going to be dealt with? When would death finally be no more? At the end. Death is the last great enemy. When Christ subjects death and puts it under His feet, then comes the end when the kingdom is given back to the Father. Well, we saw that at the end of chapter 20. What happened to death and They've been cast into the lake of fire. Death is no more. This is our end scene now. This is the picture of the comfort being given to the holy people of God. And that's why verse 4 continues, There will be no more grief, no crying. There will no longer be any pain. The idea trying to communicate is that the people of God are now finally at rest. And it fits so well like the writer of Hebrews in the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4 spoke of this longing for the rest that is to come. The promise that the God's people is still remains open for a rest. And that we rest when we are setting aside our labors. And here is the picture now that now the people of God are finally at rest God has been vindicated as comfort is given to them. There is no more death. There is no more pain. There is no more tears. Now we are at rest with God. And I think that's important. And when we go through these last couple of chapters, it, this isn't about location. Uh, so often this is kind of in terms of, you know, lo- locationally, as if there's really uh, streets of gold and as if they're really, you know, mansions and it's in a physical sense. This is trying to envision for us why this great relationship with God is so wonderful trying to visualize all that we are looking for in this life is now going to finally be realized in the life to come when we are joined with God permanently when we receive those great blessings. Uh, I think all of us at some point we go, it would be nice to have a rest, right? You know, It's kind of this great yearning of rest and peace. And here it is being pictured, especially for these Christians who have suffered so much, Now you're comforted. Now the rest has arrived. Now there's no more death. Now there's no more pain. Now there's no more tears. Look at verse 5. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. What a great statement. Here is God saying, All right, it's all being changed over. This prophetic certainty to say, This is all happening. Remember, as this is being written, this is all in process, being written then to these Christians and telling them, Okay, here's what's going to happen. Here's how it's going to go. You're going to suffer. You're going to die. You're going to be slain for the cause of Christ. But this great prophetic certainty God is renewing all things. He is making all things new. He is putting all things under His feet. And, And that has been the picture of what Revelation has been showing us. Is that Christ has come 
His kingdom has been established. He is ruling on the throne. And He is restoring all things. He is conquering all things. The book of Daniel has pictured this beautifully of these nations that stand against Him. And as the kingdom of God is going to rule over them and the nations are going to be subdued. Remember at the end of chapter 11 when we saw the the Jewish nation fall, we have this great cheering of, yes, here is the kingdom of God once again being established. Here is the great kingdom of God ruling yet more. We saw it again in chapter 17 and 18 in particular. Yes, the kingdom of God is ruling as the fall of the Roman Empire has now been visualized. God is ruling. He is conquering the nations. He is subjecting them. And this, verse 5, is in that prophetic certainty that we've seen a number of times throughout the book of Revelation. Remember the phrase, fallen, fallen is Babylon. Well, that hadn't happened yet, right? It was prophesying about how the Roman Empire was going to fall, but it was stated with this certainty. It's going to happen because God has decreed it. The same thing is happening here. Here is this comfort being seen. Here is the kingdom of God that has been set up and is ruling. It is conquering. It is subjecting the nations. It has already put down Jewish nation, Roman nation. It's continuing to rule. And here is this picture in verse 5. And God is in the process of still completing that. As the nations and those who are wicked stand against Him, they are falling. And notice the end of verse 5 in the message of encouragement. Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. A promise, a guarantee given by God. These things will certainly happen. The intensity of these words, I think, are easily lost on me and and perhaps on you as well because we are not in the same circumstances that the original audience was when they heard these words. To be told from the very outset of the book that it wasn't going to go well for them. As the churches there and those seven churches of Asia are being told about be faithful unto death. You're going to suffer tribulation ten days. You're going to be killed. And we saw that imagery flow all throughout the book of Revelation to the point we get to chapter 13 that those who do not worship the beast are going to be killed. That you have this grand conclusion that God is subjecting those evil forces. He is destroying them. Christ is ruling over them in His kingdom. And when we get to the end, He's ruling over all things. And as the Apostle Paul even predicted was going to happen, that He's going to rule over everything. And so here is this promise that guaranteed by God. These things are trustworthy. These things are true. And verse 6 continues that encouragement. It's done. It is completed. God has done what He has set out to do. He has put all things under His feet. He is now bringing rule over all peoples, all nations. And so now it is being brought together in this finale. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Christ is the first and the last. We saw that description given to Him in the first couple of chapters. And this shows that He can do what He says that He's promised. This comfort most certainly will come because... He is the first and the last. He is everything. He is the Creator. He has done it all. And so it is a promise validated that says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. There is absolute certainty 
in the hope you have of the eternal reward to come. There's no doubt about it. And so that's why you have this language given to us repeatedly, like as we notice, verse 5. These words are trustworthy and true. Verse 6, it is done. Verse 6, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. These things are most assured to the people of God that these things will certainly take place. And verse 6 continues that. Notice it there. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Uh, Here then the the receiving of the salvation from that eternal punishment that we saw in chapter 20. Now, here are the people of God receiving it. The very thing that Jesus Himself even talked about. Where in John 7 verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to Me and drink. Whoever believes in Me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this He said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in Him were to receive, For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. He used that imagery. Same imagery comes from Isaiah 55. This imagery of living waters are going to be poured out. All who will come to Him can receive this great salvation and receive the true bread, receive the true waters, receive the true blessings of God, and perhaps uh, best of all at the end of verse 6, without payment. I'd love to do a side sermon on Isaiah 55. Can't do that. But Isaiah 55, what a great beginning. It talks about come and receive the bread that's free, without payment. Receive the true blessings of God that can't be purchased. Why go and buy the bread of this world and participate in the things of the world that don't give you the true and lasting satisfaction Buy the bread, buy the water, receive the water that comes from God that's without payment, that is for free from Him. It's a great picture. And the idea then is to say, now salvation and the grace of God have been fully received from Christ. Because chapter 20 showed the books are open, and now we are receiving that reality that we have put our hope in. And think about kind of the nature of how salvation is. Is that, are we saved now? Yes, we are saved now in a particular sense. But when we get to the final day of judgment, imagine how it's going to go as the books are opened. Now that's the grand reality. Everything that we've put our hope in, that one day when the books are open, He is going to issue us this fountain of grace. He's going to give us these blessings that we have put our trust in for all of our lives. That's why we have sacrificed ourselves and why we have given our lives to Him so that that one day when we come before the throne room of God, that salvation and that grace will be realized and it will be given to us. And that's the imagery that's being pictured here. Is Here are these faithful Christians and they're receiving that reward. Now as The parable says, now they're hearing the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Verse 7, and the one who conquers will have this inheritance, and I will give, or excuse me, I will be his God, and he will be my son. The picture then to the victorious. They are going to inherit 
all of these blessings and all of these rewards. Here's this faithful promise to those who overcome. Remember how each of the seven churches of Asia heard those final words at the end of the letter. To those who overcome or to those who are victorious, to those who conquer. Here it is now being realized. To those who conquer, to those who remain faithful in the face of all that has been told about the suffering and persecution and death that these Christians would endure, to those who hold fast in the face of all of that. He wants them to know these blessings, this inheritance, these rewards are going to be yours. And probably no better words than to say in verse 7, I will be His God. That's one of the chilling things that you learn in the Gospels when, when Jesus says that those who deny Me now, I'll deny Him before the Father. That will not be a good feeling to get before God in the day of judgment and have, I don't know who you are. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Here to hear the words, I will be His God. They'll be My people. Uh, They will be My son. They'll be My daughter. They're My children. Let them in. That is the picture that this is concluding with. And notice how verse 8 gives such a strong contrast to everybody else. The second death awaits. This eternal separation from God. The eternal punishment that we have seen in chapter 19 and chapter 20. Remember in chapter 20 we saw it already happen. Not only has Satan been cast into the lake of fire, that eternal separation from God. Back in chapter 20 verse 15, anyone's name that was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So here is now a description. Well, who are those people? Who are the ones who are not participating with God and joining in the great blessings to come? Who are being cast into the lake of fire? Who is receiving the second death? Did you notice the description? The first one is cowards. Now, I don't believe that means, you know, you're kind of a sheepish person who's kind of afraid to, you know, you're afraid to bungee jump or, you know, do something kind of extreme and radical. Uh, Not that kind of cowardly. It's those who are cowards in the face of the persecution that has been described in this book. Those who do love their lives to the death rather than forfeiting their lives for the cause of Christ. These are the ones who were the faithful, but in the face of the suffering and the persecution that has been told to us in this book, they have renounced their faith. They would rather preserve their physical lives rather than spare their eternal lives. They are the cowards. And I think that is why that's fascinating. That's the first word given of all the descriptions here. All of these sins are laid out, but the first one is the cowards. Who are the ones who are going to stand for God in the face of suffering, in the face of persecution, in the face of ridicule, in the face of death? Who will be faithful? And as Jesus said, when the Lord returns, will He find faith on the earth? I think it is certainly a grand question for us to ask because how often we slip away from God from our own present because of our own present distresses and difficulties and suffering. And here is God throwing down such an amazing challenge. I've told you what's going to happen. I have explained to you the suffering to come. Will you still serve in the face of that? Could you imagine if God were to 
give us an inspired letter that said, in the generation or two to come, this nation is going to be completely overthrown by another nation and you are going to suffer and everyone who claims to be a Christian is going to be persecuted and slain. It is unavoidable. It will most certainly happen. God has decreed it. You will die. Anybody signing up for, oh right, let's go evangelize. Let's, uh, let's go preach, right? Let's go teach the world. Or would we be, you know, I need to rethink this whole God business. I'm not sure about dying for this. It's one thing to serve God, you know, but I mean, death, come on. It seems to me that verse 8 is stating the reality that God knows the human response. That there will be many who will say, I would rather preserve my life than give it for the cause of Christ. You have the rest there, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, all of these unbelievers, all of these who are full of wickedness, who have not served the Lord, they also are cast into the lake of fire. All of this wickedness being described, their portion is that in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur is how the end of verse 8 concludes. The idea that Revelation wants us to get here in these first eight verses that it is the faithful who are longing for these great rewards. The faithful are holding fast to the promises of God, awaiting the reality that one day these things will arrive, that this will be the great reward. And to use some of the imagery to picture what it means for us to finally reach that eternal life, what it means to now receive everything that we have been longing for, to be joined with God. Yes, the kingdom is now. Yes, we reign with Him now. Yes, we are joined with Him now. Yes, we are the church and He is Christ and we are the bride. But the ultimate fulfillment and reality of all these images, the final giving of all of the eternal blessings, the great reality of salvation and all that we are looking forward to, finally culminating in the day of judgment to be able to enter in and to be able to enjoy the presence of God, the paradise of God, and to live with Him eternally. That is what, right from the beginning of the book, was stated to those Christians, Revelation 2 and verse 10, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear if the Spirit says to the churches, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And you see the seamless movement of how this book has come. From the very beginning, this warning was set. Be faithful unto death, but if you will overcome, the great reward is there to not be hurt by the second death to not be cast in the lake of fire, to not be eternally separated from God. As we mentioned in our last lesson in Revelation, and it's worth bringing out here, the imagery of torment, the imagery of punishment is all used to try to help us grasp how awful it truly is to be separated from God to be completely out of His presence where there is no influence of God in the slightest. And by the same token, now these chapters are trying to portray to us understand how great it will be to be fully in God's presence. 
to be fully in the paradise of God, to be the people of God in our final perfected state, receiving the great blessings of God. And some of the imagery that we've looked at tonight, and we'll look at more as we go through these last couple chapters, but for tonight, God dwelling with man. No more death. No more pain. No more grief. No more tears. God wiping our tears. True comfort from the one who can only give us the comfort we need from the things of this world. Pull your psalm books out.